Okay, well, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 16 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. There the word of Christ says this, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the, to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. And indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and Lord, how it teaches us so clearly of what it is that you require. Lord, we are not in the dark. We are not left to our own devices. Lord, in order to understand and to know your will. But Lord, you teach us so clearly in your word that we simply need to humble ourselves, submit to your word, and Lord, do those things that are pleasing in your sight. Lord, we pray that you would instruct us today, that you would teach us and guide us, that your spirit would, Lord, discern and that he would teach those spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Lord, that we might prove ourselves through our understanding and through our obedience, Lord, through our faith, to be your children, Lord, who desire to walk in your ways. So, Lord, we ask that you would establish us in the truth, Lord, knowing that your word is truth. And, Lord, be with us, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we've come to the end of this passage that we've been looking at for the last several weeks where the apostle is addressing all of these issues related to the proper order within the home, the church, the society, and specifically in the relationship between the man and the woman. Right, I was just talking this week with someone about how so many issues, right, so many issues as relate to this present life, as relate to marriage, the relationship of the husband and the wife, creation, mutual dependence of the male and the female upon one another, all of these things are bound up in this passage. Right? So while our original intent was to address the practice and the issue of head coverings, right, we have seen that in this symbol there is built upon a foundation that rest upon the truths revealed by God in his word, right? Specifically, those truths established by God 
in creation, right? The order established by God at the creation of the world. Now, last week, we covered verses 11 and 12, where the apostle taught the mutual dependence of the man and the woman, that there is an order in the relationship, and while it is true that the man, in terms of position, has a superior position to the woman, the man is superior, the woman is inferior in terms of authority, but this does not mean that the man gains nothing from the woman, but rather in the Lord, he said, Neither is the woman independent of the man, nor is the man independent of the woman. That God created, right, both sexes, both the male and the female, the human race in such a way that the one cannot fulfill God's will, cannot fulfill the mandate to be fruitful, multiply, and subdue the earth without one another, right? The man needs a woman and the woman needs a man. Both are necessary to fulfill God's purpose for creation, A man separated from his wife is like a head without a body, right? A woman separated from her husband is like a body without a head. But when the two come together and are one flesh, when the two live together in harmony and have mutual love and affection for one another, each fulfilling the purpose ordained by God in the marriage, then you have a whole. You have a complete body, you have a a whole family, and it's good for everyone. It's good for the children, it's good for the church, it's good for society. It's going to be beneficial to everyone involved. The proof of this dependence was seen in that the woman originated from the man. Every woman who has ever existed would not have existed without the man, without Adam, for the original woman came from his rib. She originated from him. So without the first man, woman would have never existed. But now, in like manner, man is born of a woman. Right After Adam, he being the only exception, God designed that the proliferation of mankind would come about in such a way that all men would be born of a woman. So every man who has ever existed and every man who ever will exist came into the world through a woman. And so in this way, the two are dependent on one another. And seeing that we depend upon each other, then how can we spite and hate our own body? How can we spite and hate that which is necessary for our good, right? For us to do the will of God. We shouldn't do that at all. But rather, we should love each other. We should live in harmony with one another. We should do what God has called us to do. Now, today, we'll turn to the conclusion of this passage where he gives some final reasons, final proofs for why it is that a woman ought to pray and prophesy with her head covered and why it is that a man ought to pray and prophesy with his head uncovered. Let's look at verse 13. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 13. There he says, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Here, he is calling them to weigh the evidence. He has given many proofs, many proofs from Scripture, many reasons as to why the woman should pray with her head covered. He has given ample, sufficient proof for this practice to establish this practice in the Bible, in creation, in the authority of God. So much proof is given here that anyone who is humble, who is teachable, who wants to know the will of God, who has as their desire to walk in the ways of God, should, at the conclusion of this passage, be able to judge for himself what is right. Right? Judge for yourself, he says. 
Right? I've given you the evidence. Now judge it, weigh it, look at it, examine it. Is this proper or is this improper? This should be the attitude of all of the righteous. Teach me your ways, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Psalm 86, verse 11. When we are exposed to the Bible, to the truths of Scripture, when the Bible is clearly taught to us, then we ought to be able to judge for ourselves what is right. We should be able to determine what is good and what is evil, what is true, what is false, what is proper, and what is improper. This is the goal of the teaching of the Word of God, so that we would no longer be children tossed to and fro by various winds of doctrine, but rather that we would arrive at maturity in our faith, that we would be stable, and that we would be able to discern what is the will of God discern what is good, what is evil, and walk in the straight ways of the Lord. And that's what he's calling them to do. Judge for yourselves, he says. Is it proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? Right? I've given you the evidence, so is it proper or not? Look at it, examine it, and determine what is good and right. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. This is the goal, not just on this issue, but on all issues. Every thing that the Bible addresses, we need to be able to discern what is good and right. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11 says, Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You have Come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. They have their senses, their spiritual senses, trained to be able to discern or to judge between good and and evil. We ought to be able to do this as we advance and mature in the Christian life. A simple, clear presentation of the facts of Scripture should be sufficient to convince us of the truth, should be enough for us to determine what is proper and what is improper. And since we are believers, right, since we claim to be Christians, then don't we want to do what's proper in the sight of God? So as soon as we find out what is proper, then we ought to judge that this is right, and we ought to give ourselves to that practice. This is a part of the Christian life. We have to hear evidence. We have to open the scriptures. We have to consider the teaching and then conform our life to what we've heard and have the ability to judge what is right. This is what we're called to do day in and day out. Do we not make a thousand decisions every day? Aren't we called to live a godly life in everything that we do? So as we go through each and every day, as we face the various situations of life, we have to be able to incorporate the teachings of Scripture into what we're doing, right? Studying the Bible, hearing the teaching, seeking wise counsel, then making proper decisions, making good judgments in life so that we conform our life to the very life of Christ. Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12. 
Notice here, verse 49. Luke chapter 12, verse 49. Jesus says, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it was already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and how distressed I am until it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you, no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. And he was also saying to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, a shower is coming, and so it turns out. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, it will be a hot day, and it turns out that way. You hypocrites, you know how to analyze the appearance of earth and the sky. But why do you not analyze the present time? And why do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? For while you are going with your opponent to appear before the magistrate, on your way there make an effort to settle with him so that he may not drag you before the judge. And the judge turn you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison. I say to you, you will not get out of there until you have paid the very last sin. There Jesus is telling them, How is it that you people are able to judge the appearance of earth and sky? You see a cloud rising, and you know it's going to rain. You feel the south wind blowing, and you know it's going to be a hot day. And then you're able to conform your life. You're able to do what is necessary, take the measures that are necessary, adjust what you're doing in order to accommodate what is going to happen in that day. You look at the the weather, you look at these things, you make some prediction on the future, and you accommodate your life accordingly. But you're not able to do that spiritually. How can you not judge the times? How can you not, of your own initiative, see what is happening in your midst, see what is happening in your very presence, and come to the right conclusions? We must be able to judge for ourselves what is right. We can't be double-minded people. Those who lack the ability those who lack the discernment to make good decisions. This is what a double-minded person is. They're unstable, unstable in all their ways. They're like the wind that blows here and there. They're like a wave of the ocean that goes to and fro. They're like a child that is easily manipulated and duped. You can get them to do whatever you want. This is what James says in James chapter 1. James chapter 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that he'll receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. A double-minded man is unstable. He facilitates between various opinions. One day he's hot, the next day he's cold. He doesn't know where he's going. He's here, then he's there, right? This is what he's done. When he's with the wise, he pretends to be wise. But when he's with a fool, then he he reveals that he's a fool. This is the way he is because he has no stability. He's not building his life upon the foundation of the word of Christ. But he just goes with various opinions here and there. That's why Jesus says, why Do you not even on your own initiative judge what is right? Well, is that not what the apostle is doing here? He's challenging the church. He's saying to them, judge for yourself. 
I've taught you, now it's your turn. Now it's up to you to judge for yourself what is right. He has provided much evidence for the practice that he is promoting. He has provided plenty of evidence for the woman to be convinced that it is shameful for her to pray or prophesy with her head uncovered. He has given plenty of evidence to convince all of the men that it is shameful for them to pray or prophesy with their head covered. Anyone who's listening, anyone who's looking objectively at the Word of God can see the clear distinction between man and woman and should be able to see and understand, it should not be shocking to them, that God himself would manifest this distinction in the assembly through the symbol of the head covering. So much so that at the end he can say, judge for yourself. Is it proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? And what is the answer? What is the only answer that we can say? The answer is no, it's not proper. It's not proper either for the woman to be uncovered or for the man to be covered. This is what he's doing. Also, this is a good example. This is the way we have to use the Bible. This is the way we use the Bible. With such convincing proofs, right? With such clarity, with such authority, with such conviction, that at the end, the people are left with only one option. Right, with only one option, which is obedience, conformity to the scriptures. This is the way we must be. Wisdom strengthens a wise man more than ten rulers who are in the city. Ecclesiastes 7.19 Wisdom from God. Wisdom from the word of God. When the wisdom of God is unfolded to us, then that wisdom strengthens us. It gives us conviction. It gives us clarity, it gives us understanding so that we know the will of God and then we're going to do the will of God. That's what he's done here. He's backed us into the corner and we have only one conclusion to come to, which is the right one, the proper one. Is it proper for the woman to pray with her head uncovered? He says no. And for the righteous, that's not a problem. We want to be backed into a corner by the word of God. And That's what we want. It's not drudgery. It's not a detriment to us. It's not something that we hate. No, we want to be conformed. We want to be bound by the word of God. We want God's word constraining us to do the will of God. For the righteous do not go kicking and screaming into the pathway of God's commandments. The righteous long for, they love the will of God because they know The yoke and burden of Christ is easy to bear. It is an easy burden because it is the one that leads to obedience to God, pleasing God, and ultimately it leads to eternal salvation and it leads to rewards on the day of judgment. This is what it says of Christ in Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. I delight to do your will. Well, as it is of Christ, so it should be of his people. As he is, so should we be. This is what must be said of us. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. And so, as the apostle says, so we say as well, judge for yourselves. Judge for yourselves what is proper and good. You have heard the evidence. We have gone systematically, verse by verse, through this passage, Look at the evidence. We're not twisting scripture. We're not taking things out of context. We're not bringing up bizarre historical facts in order to support some view. We're not doing that at all. We're not appealing to culture. We're not appealing to customs or to this or that. 
We're going to the scriptures. We've looked at not only this passage, but many other supporting passages as well. Namely, Genesis 1 and 2, right? Where you have much of this is built upon that foundation. And we're not twisting the scriptures. So we should be able to as well, just as they were expected, so it should be expected of us to be able to judge for ourselves what is right. Now, verse 14 and 15. Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Here he brings up one final argument for this distinction between the man and the woman. Nature itself. Doesn't even nature teach us is what he says. Thus far, his arguments have been built upon creation. In the creation account that we have access to through the word of Christ, right? Through what is revealed to us in the sacred scriptures, namely Genesis 1 and 2. We understand that we have two sources of revelation, two sources of knowledge. There is special revelation, which is the word of God, and then there is general revelation, right? Special revelation is that revelation given to us from God, through his holy prophets, and through his holy apostles. These were holy men who were carried by the Holy Spirit and who spoke the very words of God. And God has revealed to us his will, that which is necessary for life and godliness, for salvation can only be found in the word of Christ, in the special revelation of God. No one, by gazing at the stars, by looking at trees and flowers and the world, can ever come to the knowledge of salvation. The only way that one can come to the knowledge of salvation is through the word of Christ. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. Romans chapter 10 verse 17. So there is special revelation, and that is that revelation revealed in the scriptures through the mouths of prophets and the apostles who were carried by the Holy Spirit of God. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1. Verse 19, 2 Peter 1.19 says, So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So here, the interpretation given by the prophet in the scriptures did not come through the will of the man, merely through the will of the man, but rather they spoke from the Holy Spirit. They were so moved and directed by the Holy Spirit of God that what they spoke and what they wrote was the very word of Christ, perfect word of Christ without any mixture of error. So there is the special revelation that we have in the word of Christ. Also, there is general revelation or natural law. There are truths, there are things that are accessible even to those who do not have access to the word of God. There are some truths that are evident even in nature, that are embedded in nature, that men, right, even unbelieving men, even idolatrous men, 
even men who have no contact to the Bible, yet they will behave in some, in some ways, in certain ways, with things that are consistent and right with what is true and good. Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 teaches this. How is this the case? That those who do not have the law of God, by nature, do what the law requires. If they don't have access to the law of God, then where are they learning these things? How are they taught these things? General revelation. The law on the conscience. Romans 2 verse 12. It says, For all who sin without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. On the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. How do Gentiles who have no law, who don't have the revealed law of God, the word of God, how do they instinctively do what the law requires? If they don't have the law, then who taught them these things? Where did they learn these truths? Where did they learn these things that they are instinctively doing? And it is general revelation. It is the law of God written on the conscience. There are some truths, some morality that people know instinctively. Now again, it's not perfect. It never leads to salvation. He's not saying these people are righteous and that they're godly or that they're going to go to heaven. Of course, that's not the case. It never leads to salvation, but he's simply showing that even amongst idolaters, even amongst unbelievers, there still remains some remnant of truth in nature so that in some areas, right, not in all areas, but in some areas, a few areas, even unbelievers will in a way conform to those things that are consistent with the word of God. A couple examples. Acts 25. Acts 25 Acts 25, verse 15. Actually, we'll pick up in verse 13. Acts 25, 13 says, Now when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. While they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against this man, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it is not the custom of the Romans to hand over any man before the accused meet his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. Now, is that consistent with justice in the courts for an accuser? to be able to face his accusers face to face and make a defense against their charges. Should a person be condemned just by his accusers and not be allowed to defend himself? Of course not. Well, who is holding to this practice? The Romans. The Romans are doing this and they don't have the word of God. 
They are idolatrous people, yet they, in this way, they're even better than the Jews. Because the Jews want the Romans to just kill Paul based on their testimony, and yet they don't do so because they say it's not right. It's not right and fair for this man to be condemned without being able to defend himself against the charges made against him. So here, the Romans knew and understood who are pagans, who are idolaters, who have a pantheon of many gods, who are all unbelievers and they're all going to hell, yet they knew and understood that it's not right for a person to be accused and not be allowed to face his accusers. So where did they learn this? That's what Romans chapter 2 is talking about. They do the law instinctively. It's written on the heart because there is some remnant of these things that remains even in unbelieving men. Also, Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. Titus 1 verse 12. Titus 1.12 says, One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. Here, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own. So one of their own prophets. Right? He's not talking about a true prophet. He's talking about one of the Cretan prophets who's an unbeliever. Yet even this Cretan, who on many things is wrong, who worships a false god, yet even he understands something about his own countrymen, something that is true about them, and he's not saying these things as compliments. He's not commending his own people. He's calling them liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So this Cretan prophet, who doesn't have the word of God, knows instinctively that lying is wrong, that being an evil beast is, is wrong, and that being a lazy glutton is wrong, and that he's able to discern and determine that his own countrymen, that this is what is generally true of Cretans, that they behave in this way. How did he know these things? Instinctively, the law of God written on the heart. Well, this is the same as what the apostle is appealing to here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Does not nature itself... Nature itself teaches that there is a clear distinction between the man and the woman. Isn't that true? That nature teaches these things? Nature itself teaches that there are some things that are acceptable for a woman to do and are unacceptable for a man to do. Just as there are some things that are acceptable for a man but unacceptable for a woman. So nature teaches the distinction between the man and the woman, and nature teaches that this distinction will be manifest outwardly in the way that they dress, in their adornment, in the appearance of the man and the woman. Right? And then the argument he makes is from the lesser to the greater. Right? If nature teaches this, and if unbelievers recognize this distinction, right? if it's even seen among them, even among idolaters, then shouldn't the church... The church of Jesus Christ, the saints of God who have the mind of Christ, who have the spirit of Christ within them, who have access to the holy word of God, shouldn't we be able to maintain a distinction between men and women and avoid those things that are shameful for a man to do or shameful for a woman to do? 
if nature does this, and if unbelievers are able to do this because of natural law, then shouldn't we Christians be able to do this even better than them because we have the Word of God, and we have the Spirit of God, and we have the very mind of Christ? Of course so. Of course we should be able to do so. This is the same as 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. He's saying this to their shame. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 1 and 2, that in this one area, the Christians are worse than the Gentiles. How can that ever be the case? That the Christians are behaving in ways that even Gentiles won't do. Right? This is said to the shame of the church. 1 Corinthians 5.1 It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. You have become arrogant and have not mourned instead, so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. This immorality, even the Gentiles don't do this. And that's why he's rebuking them so severely. How can you do this? How can Gentiles surpass you in terms of morality and in terms of knowledge? This shouldn't be the case at all, and yet it is. So he's saying it to their shame also. Chapter 6, chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. says, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judge who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who is able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Here again, you are saints, is what he's saying. You are the righteous. You have faith. You have the word of God. You're going to judge angels in the world to come. You're going to do all of these things in the life to come, and yet here, you can't handle even the smallest of cases, but you're having to go to court, that before unbelievers, to get them to determine for you what is just and good and right and proper. Isn't there someone, he says, among you? Isn't someone to have wisdom among you that you can present these cases to and then they can make a determination that you have to go to unbelievers to get their wisdom and understanding for these things? He says, no, this should not be the case at all. He says, this is a shame for you that unbelievers excel you in terms of justice, in terms of knowledge and wisdom. That should never be the case. How can the saints have less knowledge, less understanding than the unrighteous? This cannot be the case at all. They come to these things by nature. We have the Spirit of Christ and the Word of Christ, and we have nature. So we have everything that they have, plus we have the Word of God, and we have the Spirit of Christ. So shouldn't the saints excel unbelievers in everything? in terms of knowledge, righteousness, godliness, judgment. Our understanding, our practices should be far superior to them. Well, if the unrighteous see and behave accordingly through nature, 
then we should see and we should behave accordingly even more so, both through nature and the Word of God. Well, what does nature teach? If a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. This is true, right? This is true and generally seen and recognized even amongst the unbelievers, even amongst the nations, right? Two things. First, that there are only two sexes. There are men and women, male and female, not two genders. We need to not use that word. Don't use the word gender. Use the word sex, right? Like when you see your birth certificate and it says sex, it either has an M for male or an F for female, right? And that is dependent on objective reality, right? Something that's seen, that's obvious. Even a child can recognize those things. When the baby comes out, they, everyone looks and goes, oh, yep, that's a boy. Or they go, oh, yep, that's a girl. It's obvious to anyone who's looking objectively that there's only two sexes. Either you're a boy or you're a girl. You have either the parts of a man or you have the parts of the woman. So they have substituted the term sex for gender. This is a sly, crafty, subtle way that these psychopaths that are running our country, that have filled all these institutions, have sown so much confusion into the current conversation. They filled it with many lies. Because gender is a fluid term. Gender is subjective. Gender is open to interpretation. But sex is not. You're either male or female. It refers to anatomy. It refers to the members of the body, which is clear, obvious, unmistakable, right? You can't miss it. It's not open to interpretation. It's not open to some new definition. It refers to the sexual organs that one has when they are born. They're either a man or a woman. There's no halvesies, right? There's no in-between. There's no third or fourth party. There's no non-binary. All of that stuff is utter nonsense. So nature teaches that there is only male and female. Then secondly, what else does nature teach? In terms of adornment, right? In terms of appearance, a man should adorn himself like a man. And a woman should adorn herself like a woman. If a man dresses like a woman, it is a very shameful and detestable thing. If a woman dresses like a man, it is a very shameful and detestable thing. But for a man to dress like a man is normal and natural. And for a woman to dress like a woman is normal and natural. And actually here, it's glorious. In terms of the hair and the length of the hair, it is a glorious thing for a woman to embrace that she is a woman and to wear her hair in a way that shows to all that she is a woman. Deuteronomy 22.5. Deuteronomy 22.5. A woman shall not wear man's clothing, nor shall a man put on woman's clothing. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. A man who wears woman's clothing a woman who wears man's clothing. God says it's an abomination. Something that is abominable to God. Something that he hates. Something that he detests. Something that he will judge the world 
for these types of things. The way a man dresses and the way a woman dresses, it is important to God. It is an issue that we have to examine and look at. Their respective apparel should be consistent with their sex. A man should dress like a man, and a woman should dress like a woman. And this truth is even seen among animals. Isn't it true that many animals have markers in terms of their appearance that make a clear distinction between a male and a female more than just the sexual organ. They have that, and so that's obvious, but even many of them in the way that they appear, their appearance, there's a difference between the male and the female. For example, pheasants. Pheasants, if you go pheasant hunting, you can't shoot females. You can only shoot males. So for all the women who complain about being a woman and being oppressed, well, if you're a pheasant, you have nothing to be uh, uh, complaining about. You can't get shot, okay? So there's that. But also, how are you going to be able to determine in a split second, right? Because they fly up in your face, whether this is a male or female. Well, the female looks one way and the male looks a different way. The male has many colors on him and then the female is brown in uh, in that way. So it's obvious. As soon as they fly up, you know that's a male, you shoot it. That's a female, you don't shoot it. Also, many ducks, this is the case. For example, the mallard duck. They have a green head that shines as bright as as anything. It's obvious that that's a male, and the females are brown. What about deer? Well, if it has antlers, it's a male. Now, occasionally, there's females that can have antlers, but it's very, very rare. If it has antlers, you know, okay, that's a buck. If it doesn't, you know that that's a doe. Chickens. We have chickens at our house, and you can tell. Obviously, if it's crowing in the morning, it's a rooster, right? If it has the look of the rooster, that's what it is. It's a male, and there's the female. So these things are obvious. They're plain in the way they look, in the way they behave, right? In in the way that they come into the world. Well, isn't this true of mankind as well? The hair is a natural marker created by God, that manifests the distinction between the man and the woman. The man's hair is naturally shorter, and also it should be worn shorter, and the woman's hair is naturally longer and should be worn longer than the man. This truth is manifested naturally in the hair. And typically, generally speaking, if a man has long hair, it is shameful for him. He looks like a girl, and everyone's going to make fun of him. At least I am, okay? Or many people will. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. It is beautiful. It is glorious for the woman to have long hair, but not for the man. Now, why? Her hair is given to her for a covering. The hair of the woman is a natural covering provided for her by God, both as a natural reminder of her position, her position to be under the authority of her husband, to be in submission to the man, that she is under his authority. Now, this natural covering is separate from the symbolic covering that he talked about in verses 4 and 5. Look back at verse 4 and 5. Here, again, we're talking about creation, nature. In verses 4 and 5, he's talking about the symbol. Verse 4, Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. 
that every woman who has her hair, her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. The symbolic covering, which is the veil or the cloth that the woman wears on her head, then there's the natural covering, which is the long hair that has been given to her by God as an outward clear sign that the woman is not a man and holds a different position than the man. But also, notice, this natural covering is said to be glorious for her, right? It is a glorious covering for her. So God in his graciousness, in his kindness, has made the woman's natural covering, right, that shows that she is in submission to the man, that in terms of position, she has the inferior position, but in order to mitigate and to make that less severe for her, he makes it so that the symbol, the natural covering that she has, is also something that brings her glory, something that makes her beautiful, something that is glorious for her. The long hair of the woman does not bring her shame, but rather it brings her beauty, it brings her glory. God designed the natural covering in this way that it would also be a sign of her glory. So in terms of position, the man has the more glorious position of authority because he is the head of the woman. But in terms of hair, the woman has the more glorious position because her hair is more beautiful than the man's. And many men, what happens to their hair? It goes right out the window, right? They lose it, right? They lose it, but it doesn't happen with women. Right? It doesn't happen with women typically. It's a very rare case. Now, of course, as people get older and, and uh, they experience those things, yes, their, women's hair does not grow the way that it used to when they were younger. But even in relationship to older men, they're still far ahead of them, right? The older men, they lose everything. But yet even older women still, though their hair does thin, they still have more hair than men who are the same age as them. So in terms of position, the man has the more glorious position, but in terms of the hair, the woman has the more glorious symbol, right? The more glorious natural covering. Again, why is this the case? Why is it that the man's hair does not grow like the woman's? Why is it that many a man, God removes his hair from him, but the older, uh, he, by the older that he gets, but not the case with the woman? Now, scientists or whatever, they'll tell, oh, well, it's because of this and that. And certainly, those things are observable. But who created man and woman? Who designed them in this way? God is the designer. God is the one who created men and women in this way. And he did it intentionally in order to teach and manifest these truths. Also, another point to be made. In terms of glory, remember verse 7. Verse 7. He's brought up glory before. Verse 7. A man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. There, man is the image and glory of God, woman is the glory of man, and now he has a third uh, manifestation of glory, and that is the hair of the woman. The hair is the glory of the woman. And as we said earlier, right, in the previous lessons, the woman should wear a covering because the worship of God is supposed to focus on who? Whose glory should be seen when we meet together? Only the glory of God. 
And who is the glory of God according to verse 7? The man is the glory of God, and this is why the man should not have his head covered, so that God's glory seen in the man, in the way that God created the man, that that glory would be uncovered and would be revealed and would be seen in the worship of God. But woman, he says, is the glory of man. And that's one of the reasons she should have her head covered because that which is not God's glory, but the glory of man should be concealed whenever we are meeting together and worshiping God. Well, here we have another glory and that is the glory of woman. And what is the glory of woman? It is her hair. So three glories are present in our assembly. The glory of God is the man. The glory of man is the woman and the glory of woman is her hair. And how is it then that the glory of man and the glory of woman will be concealed in the assembly? Through the covering. It accomplishes both at the same time. The woman, who is the glory of man, and the hair, which is the glory of the woman, both of them are to be concealed or hidden through the symbolic wearing of the head covering, so that God's glory is the focus of our worship service. Right? Does that make sense? That's what he's talking about here. Also, in terms of the covering, then it should be something that covers the hair as well. The head and the hair. If the hair is the glory of the woman, then that glory should be covered as well. So it should cover both the head and also the hair in this way. Verse 16, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Here, his final remark on this issue, his concluding remark, having laid out all of the arguments for this practice, he reminds the people, ultimately, where is this coming from? Who is the source of this teaching? Well, it's not being invented in the mind of the Apostle Paul. It's not something that he just is presenting as an opinion. Ultimately, the source of this teaching is God himself, the authority of God Almighty. And when God teaches us from his holy word, we should be like righteous Samuel, who said, speak for your servant is listening. This is the attitude that we should have when we come to the word of God. Lord, speak to us. We are listening to you so that we can hear your word, so that we can obey you, and so that we can do your holy will. We should not argue and bicker and fight and be contentious against God or against his messenger. The messenger, he's just a messenger. That's who I am. I'm just a messenger. It's not my teaching. The teaching is God's. Therefore, we should not be contentious against God. Because if we contend with our maker, what's going to happen to us? We're always going to lose on that, right? We are never going to come out as the winner in that fight. Job chapter 9. Job chapter 9. We could read many passages from Job. But chapter 9, verses 1 to 4, lays out this truth. Job chapter 9, verse 1. Then Job answered, In truth, I know that this is so. But how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times. Wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defied him without harm? 
if one wishes to dispute with God, and he does so a thousand times, how many times is he going to lose? A thousand times. Right? That's what he's saying. A thousand times you're going to lose. Who has defied God and it not been to his harm and to his ruin? No one. So we can't defy God. We cannot win a war against God. We're always going to be the losers in that regard. That's what the apostle knows. And that's why he says that he himself, he himself is not a contentious man against God. He knows that we cannot resist God or his word and survive. Those who strive with their maker do so to their own detriment and to their own ruin. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters the rock? Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like fire? We cannot oppose the fire and, and win. And this is why we shouldn't be contentious against God's word. We should always be humble and always submit ourselves to the word of God. The apostle is not a contentious man. He says, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no practice. He and his associates, they do not practice this type of lifestyle, this type of attitude toward the word of God, nor, he says, do the churches of God. The other churches where he's been at, where he's taught, those churches, they weren't contentious against the word of God either. Well, if they weren't contentious, then we shouldn't be contentious. If he's not contentious, neither should we. The ancient church, those churches founded by the apostle, they were not contending against God, but were submitting to the word of God. And don't people always say, oh, we, I wish we could go back to the early church. Right? We, we need to be early church, New Testament churches. That's what they say. Now, when they say it, they don't mean it in the right way. But okay, you want to be early church? Well, what was one of the markers of the early church? They were not contentious against God. Isn't that what he says? The churches, they don't do this, right? We don't do it. If anyone is inclined to this, we don't do it, nor do the churches of God. This is a distinguishing mark of a true believer and of a true church. Submission to the will of God. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. John chapter 10, verse 27. So what should we do? Follow the word of Christ. Don't contend against our maker. Don't kick against the goads, but submit to the word of God. And the good news is, is that ever going to be for our harm? Is it ever going to be detrimental to our happiness, to our goodness, to our spiritual life, our children, our families, anyone? Is it going to hurt anyone for us to do the will of God? No. But if we don't do the will of God, it's going to harm us. And who else is it going to harm? Everyone else. So we have many reasons to obey God and to not be contentious. So then let us not contend with God, but rather let's do the will of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word and, Lord, for how it does teach us, Lord, so clearly everything that we need for life and godliness. Lord, you have given us your word so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You have told us, Lord, what is good and right. And, Lord, now it is up to us to obey, Lord, to be faithful, Lord, to conform our life to the very mind of Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that we would do so. Lord, we pray that our homes 
Lord, would be ordered properly. Lord, we pray that the men would take their role and their responsibility seriously. Lord, that they would see that they are the spiritual shepherds, the heads of their house. Lord, they are the high priest of the home. Lord, the pastor who is there, who you have given oversight, Lord, over the spiritual life of the wife and the children. And so, Father, we pray that the men would embrace the position of authority that you have granted to them. Lord, that they would execute it faithfully by teaching and leading their families in the fear of the Lord. Lord, as well, we thank you for the wives that you've given to us. And Lord, we pray for the women. Lord, that they would be content, Lord, with what you have granted to them. Lord, that they would not be like those evil spirits, those fallen angels, who were not content to stay within their own position, but who rebelled against you. Lord, we pray that our women would not follow in the ungodliness of Eve, Lord, who subverted the authority of her husband and acted independently of him and was deceived by the serpent. But rather, we pray that, Lord, they would manifest their godliness through the gentle, quiet spirit of a godly wife. Lord, living a righteous life, submitting to their husbands, Lord, loving their children, and Lord, doing that which is good and pleasing in your sight. Lord, as well, we pray that our children would be raised in homes like this, and that, Lord, you would use that for their good. Lord, to establish righteousness in the next generation. Lord, guard us from the lies of the devil, Lord, the lies of the world and the lies of the flesh. Lord, which are being uh, touted today, Lord, in every sector of our country. Lord, in this corrupt society in which we find ourselves. Lord, where even the very definition of what it is to be a man or what it is to be a woman has been questioned. Lord, has been overturned so that there is all manner of unrighteousness and evil. Lord, we pray that this, these, these false ideas, Lord, this wickedness, Lord, would not come into our mind, but that we would stand against it, Lord, and oppose it, and that here within your church, Lord, we would order ourselves rightly, that the men would behave like men and the women would behave like women. And Lord, we pray that our boys would be given examples of what it means to be a godly man, and Lord, a true man, and that they would walk in that way, and that our young girls, Lord, would have examples of godly women, and that they would follow them in their footsteps, Lord, and do those things that are pleasing in your sight. Lord, may we be submissive to your word, Lord, knowing that we cannot strive with you. Lord, we cannot contend against you. But Lord, we must obey you in all things. And so, Father, we pray that we would prove ourselves to be your children and that as a church we would prove ourselves to be a true church of Christ through our submission to you. Lord, that we would not contend, but rather, Lord, that we would obey. So, Lord, Help us to be obedient in all things, Lord, in both this issue and, Lord, in every issue that the Bible addresses. And, Lord, continue to sanctify us and cause us to walk in your ways. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.